Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. Are you your family's historian? The one that listens to all the elders' stories? or digs into that big box of old family photographs. Ever wonder how many of your dad's stories are really true? Or do you have a big family secret that hasn't been revealed in generations? This podcast episode is for you. In celebration of National Archives Month, we're going to talk to two accomplished family historians. My first guest is Jill Marie Snyder. She has a B.A. in Urban Studies from the University of Connecticut and an M.A. in Communication from Fairfield University. Retired from a corporate career in the insurance industry, she completed Boston University's Principles of Genealogy course. Her book, Dear Mary, Dear Luther, taken from letters written between her parents, won an African-American Historical and Genealogical Society Award for Nonfiction Romance History in 2020. Jill will be teaching a workshop on Telling Your Family's Story, Putting It All Together, on October 20, 2021, for the Ancient Bearing Ground Association and the Hartford Public Library. You can register for the workshop on the Ancient Bearing Ground Association's Facebook page under Events. My second guest is well-known Hartford jazz musician and recording artist, Oris Jenkins. He studied music at the Hart School and has released four solo albums, including the fantastic Centennial Cole, the music of Nat King Cole, in 2019. He teaches here in his hometown of Hartford and tours nationally with the Afro-Semitic Experience. His website features his family history blog, Chesta's Children, a collection of stories, people, history, records, and research. Welcome to the podcast. Jill, let me ask you when and how you got interested in your family history. I was always interested in family history. My mother told me stories starting when I was about five or six years old. And so uh, she imparted a lot, not only about her family, but she knew some things about my father's family as well. And when I found um, their love letters after she passed away in 2007, I decided to publish them and I felt they needed to have some of that history. And that's when I started actually doing research. Horace, Jill and I are boomers. We may have a little bit more time to spend on family history, but you're a millennial in the middle of a busy career. What made you research your family? It's a great question. I guess I've always had strange hours in my my career. So what is there to do at two in the morning when I'm up? Because I just got home from being on stage and I'm still kind of wired up. What is there to do but either watch old episodes of What's My Line um, or do genealogy? So I think that's how I kind of got hooked. Before I was, uh, was kind of too cheap to get a certain website and I had found a, a cheaper one that I would use. And I really wasn't finding much of anything, but I, I got, I got hooked on it pretty, pretty easily because I could do it online now, nowadays. Um, I didn't have to go to a library or go sit through some microfilm or anything like that. I could actually find stuff using the internet from my own bed. So I think that's how I got hooked in this day and age. 
Now, Oris and Jill, you've both put a lot of your family history sort of out in public. Jill, you've published a book, and Oris, you have a website. How did you feel that you had sort of permission to put that information out there? And I know, Jill, I want you to talk about it's your parents' courtship letters, for goodness sakes. I moved it once. I well, let me let me back up a little bit. Before I actually started doing family research, I started a journal because uh, this is several years ago when ancestry. I didn't even know there was an ancestry. I don't, I don't even know if it existed when I started. So I tried just writing down everything that I knew. And since my mother had imparted the information, I, I felt I had permission to use it. Plus, she at one time, I recall that as I was journaling, had come up with the idea that she thought her family story and the letters would make a great book someday. And this is probably 50 years ago that she <laughs> mentioned that. But I, I thought of it in my journaling when, you know, in the middle of the night, the night. And so I felt I had permission. Boris, is there any, have you gotten any feedback from your family about putting any of this information online? Or are they happy to see it? I did it for them, for the most part. It, it wasn't really about sharing necessarily to to the public, but just so that anybody related to me can can find this information and these these records. I did a lot of research um, on one line of my family. One of my ancestors had 21 children, and uh, one of his children also had 21 children. So the point is, I have probably hundreds of thousands of, of descendants of this person that, you know, I will never Facebook all of them or email all of them. So I wanted to put it in a public place like my website that already has, you know, visitors. And a lot of them are really, really grateful for that because some of them have found it on their own without having to contact me directly. They've been able to just, you know, type in a Google search and and the names come up. So that's the main reason why I did it. So your family history on your website is kind of written as a series of almost like blog stories. Who is Chesta Anna? Chesta Anna is uh, my great-great-grandmother. It's my grandmother's grandmother, my mother's 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 mother. And um, she was the the catalyst for everything that involves me doing genealogy. The only story I was ever told as a child about genealogy was that she was killed um, by a stray bullet while she was cooking in the kitchen and that she was Cherokee Indian. And uh, so it was kind of a kind of a struggle for me to prove all of that. Of course, everybody wanted to prove their Native American heritage at some point or another. And um, of course, I ended up finding out that I have none, that she was not Cherokee Indian. Um, She was a mixed race black person. And she was kind of killed by a stray bullet that I do believe did come in through the window while she was cooking in the kitchen. But the person that shot the gun was actually her husband while he was outside aiming at somebody else. So I I really like to honor her because you know, she was only 35 years old. She had uh, four young children. And one of them I knew, even though this was 100 years ago when she was killed, but her youngest daughter is my great-grandmother who didn't die until 2001. So as we got to spend time with her and I realized how Tristana's death affected the trajectory of my whole family. And so it's kind of a, every time I think about it, I just kind of get immersed in it and almost lost in it because it's it's truly amazing how that unfortunate circumstance, you know, it's the reason I'm here, unfortunately, but, you know, that's how genealogy works. All these people had to meet at some point for us to be here, all these ancestors, two parents, four, eight, 
you know, you keep going, it doubles. And there's so many people that had to meet and live, die, whatever happened to them at those times. It all had to happen at that exact moment for us to be here. So it's, Chestan is one of the biggest examples of that, where I'm like, wow, it's, it's horrible what happened. And the events that happened after that, it just gets crazier and crazier. One of the things I really enjoy about your website blog is the fact that you use so many original records. You have the photos. And then for things like the grandchildren of one of your ancestors, Albert, I think you've got maybe almost a dozen and a half or two dozen photos of his grandchildren. And it just makes it so immediate when you see photographs of people that look like people you could meet on the street. It just really brings it home. Jill, you, you started out with your the letters, but that there's a long process before you get to a book. What was maybe the most interesting thing that you found out as you went along in the letters? And how important did you think it was to put those in a more broad context, a more national context? I, I, I'm going to start with the context because I think that's really important to, to give the story resonance and to have people connect with it and to understand how broad historical forces shape our lives. I mean, people moving for work, things like that, uh, economic crisis, war, is how our ancestors came to be in, in certain places. So I thought context was important because the letters are kind of light and it's fun, especially in the beginning. And I wanted people to understand that these two families had endured a lot of racism and were, you know, did they descend at least on my mother's side, I was able to document that her side of the family descended from a slave who had escaped from Virginia. So I think having that history was also important to add. One of the things when I was reading your book at the beginning, I'm wondering if Luther, I'm wondering how serious he is because they are very light, you know, and he goes to, from, Instead of from the Deep South, he goes from rural Pennsylvania to Atlantic City. And at one point, I was worried that he was just going to fall for some flashy girl in Atlantic City. You know? I think but, there were a few flashy girls along the way while he was still writing <laughs> to my mother. <laughs> he had a good time in his bachelorhood. <laughs> it's during the Depression, and you really see what it must have felt like to go from this, to be African-American and go from a very rural Pennsylvania setting to kind of the height of decadence you know, in Atlantic <laughs> City, so, which is still kind of known for that. But um, it's very descriptive, which surprised me. You know, really, you really get a sense of what it's like to be there. What do you think kept him writing? Because he was he was busy trying to earn a living. Well, they they knew each other for about a year and a half before the letters begin, so they already had a friendship. My, he was almost eight years older than she was. So I think he was being gentlemanly, <laughs> waiting for her to grow up. And at the same time, taking advantage of that for to you know have some fun himself in Atlantic City. And then especially when he, he moved to Harlem at the end of that first summer. There's a great, I think it's a great picture of him in kind of a double-breasted suit. Yeah. He looks like he's <laughs> really made it into Harlem, to say the least. Very stylish. He loved to dress. <laughs> Oris, what would you say some of your most exciting discoveries have been? Well, you mentioned earlier my ancestor, Albert. Albert Terrell, I discovered his name 
in the will of a Captain Joseph Grimsley um, last year. And actually about this time last year, I discovered that right before my birthday last year by accident because I was looking up Grimsley Mill Road, the street that my grandmother was born on in Blakely, Georgia. And I wanted to know who owned the Grimsley Mill because I'm just extra curious. I've always been that way in genealogy. He works with that. And um, I stumbled upon, you know, the wills list, the landlot numbers in this county, early county, Georgia. So I wanted to know if Joseph Grimsley owned the landlot where the Grimsley Mill was. But when I got to the will, I didn't even look at the landlot numbers because I saw the name Albert. I was like, oh, that's interesting. But, you know, it's a common name. So I said, all right, well. And I saw his wife's name, Harriet, and his children's names, Daniel and Elsie, and then I saw they have they had one son named Neptune, and that's when I knew I had the right family. But I did not expect to find who uh, had owned Albert in Early County because he was born 200 miles away, and I never really knew how he got to Early County, and uh, I just didn't expect it would be Mr. Grimsley that owned him, but um, it was, and he died in 1860, only five years before the end of the Civil War. So it's, it's truly amazing that if Captain Grimsley had died a couple of years later, I wouldn't have had this information. But that was certainly one of the most amazing discoveries that I found. And then I was able to go back in time and discover more records about Albert. I think the your research on Albert goes back to at least 1815. And that's so much before my Irish ancestors immigrated here. How did it actually make you feel the first time you saw his that enslaved ancestor's name on a record? It was pretty emotional. The night before, I had discovered a similar will, only a few pages away in that same probate book, actually, that had um, oh, a few of my cousin's ancestors that have married into the family. So, And I recognized the names and and I, I called her with like a tear in my eye. I was like, I just found your your ancestors in this will. And, and and she's a lot more emotional than I am. So she was bawling immediately. And then um and she's also a descendant of Albert. So I called her about two days later when I, I was like, I found Albert now. So it was it was almost like I had already kind of rehearsed what I was gonna tell people when I found these other folks two days earlier. Um, but I was really I was grateful that that he had a name, that there was a record of his name before emancipation. He did he did survive the Civil War, so there are records of him and since from the eighteen seventy, but his wife did not survive the Civil War, Harriet. So that was the first time I'd actually found confirmation of her name. And I really, really was emotional. This is still going back on my mom's 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 side. I'm really close to my mom and her her mom. And so it, it was just really, um, to see Harriet's name, I think was even more special than seeing um, Albert's. But seeing them together, and it literally says Albert and his wife, Harriet, you know, to see that recognized, that union recognized, even though they were not legally, you know, considered uh, citizens of America, it was really, really powerful. I'm sure it was. And Jill, how far back were you able to go with your family? On my mother's side, I found my great-great-grandfather's uh, 1882 obituary, and it describes uh, his, his life, including his escape from a Virginia plantation. And I, I can read it for you if, if we have the time. Absolutely. All right. So 
It begins, Mr. Henry Jones Collard, who lives near this town and who is widely known throughout this section of the country, died at his residence Tuesday afternoon last of pleuro-pneumonia after an illness of five days. The life of the deceased was an eventful one and would, if published, rival in interest the famed Uncle Tom's Cabin. He was born in slavery near Winchester, Virginia in about 1807. After remaining a slave for about 20 years, he made his escape, aided by his master, and after a long and perilous journey through the mountains and swamps of Virginia, traveling by night and hiding through the day, he reached McKinney's Ironworks near Williamsport, where he remained for some time, and then went to New York State, where he was married, and thence to Mainville. About 35 years ago, he came to this place where he remained up to the time of his death. He was the father of seven children, six of whom are still living, three sons and three daughters. His wife died in 1860 in this place. Old Henry, as he was familiarly called, was a favorite of everyone and his death is universally regretted. And you found that in a publication? I found that, um, I because my family was in the North for so long, I was able to go to Catawissa, and there are uh, four generations of my family are buried in a Quaker cemetery in Catawissa. So I took pictures of all the headstones and then I wrote to the historical society there and asked that they would send any information that you had on these several names. And I was amazed, you know, with what I got back with this being the prize, <laughs> prize piece. And my mother had always said that her ancestors left, came to North, to Pennsylvania, because they were being afraid, they were afraid of being sold down the river, which refers to when the cotton gin was invented and slaves were needed in the South to work in the cotton fields. Many of the Northern states sold their slaves, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, and South, to, and so he wanted to avoid that. And he would have been aware of it. Winchester, Virginia was actually a town that on the route when people were being sold down the river, they would be walked um, from Virginia down to the Ohio River and then taken down on boats to the deep south. So he, he, would have, he would have understood all that. So you were able to visit the place where your mother grew up? Uh, not my mother. My mother, um, well, yeah, sort of. Well, in the, far back. <laughs> she didn't actually grow up in Catawissa, but she did live for a while in a town nearby called Bloomsburg, a beautiful uh, college town. Did you retrace all the places that Luther mentions or that your ancestors have lived in? Well, I've been to Catawissa before uh, as a child. My my mother basically kind of tr- um, had me retrace the steps as a child. She We had a road trip to uh, Pennsylvania and we visited Catawissa, Bloomsburg and Wilkes-Barre. So and Scranton, where she was actually born. So I, I had an idea of those places from childhood. Could you tell us that story of why your family had to almost flee, really, or leave that area? Well, my grandfather, Clarence Augustus Brooks II, uh, married the girl next door. He was, of course, of African descent, and the girl next door was of German and Welsh descent. And her family did not take kindly to the fact, even though the two families had lived side by side for many years before this marriage took place, this caused a, you know, caused a rupture in their relationships. And they something they never expected to happen. Didn't apparently didn't see coming. She eloped with him and literally in the middle of the night, escaped from her house 
and ran off with him as the, as the story was told to me. They moved to this uh, lovely town I mentioned, Bloomsburg, where my grandfather and his brother-in-law had a barber shop. And they had actually, um, in the 1930s, a lucrative business. And apparently, um, her brothers were not happy with the fact that, A, they were in the town, and B, that they were actually better off than many of the whites in that area because it was, you know, the Depression. And they had a, a lucrative business because Bloomsburg is a college town, and it's also a banking center for a lot of the mining businesses in the area. So it had a, an upper-class clientele that helped them to live well. And their home was, I, I describe it as uh, men with white hoods would uh, march and protest in front of their house. And then they escalated to uh, burning crosses on the front lawn. And then they escalated to burning down the barbershop. And at that point, my uh, grandfather realized he had to take the family in, uh, out of that town because it, you know, future escalation could, could be deadly. And it caused a real rupture between the two families. And it was a sad event that my mother and her siblings talked about over and over again when we were gathered as a family. It really was seared into their memories. I thought it was just like so frightening. And you you mentioned that even though you were in the North, the KKK certainly had branches. They were so popular in the 20s through the 30s and probably now, but um, they certainly were violent in that period. So that would just be terrifying. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers, we'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with a CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our brand new e-newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions, and program announcements. Lots of good stuff to enhance your Grading the Nutmeg experience right to your email inbox. It comes out every other week, just enough, not too much. You have a choice of the free version or CT Explored Inbox Premium is 15% off for a limited time. Visit ctexplored.substack.com today. Interested in taking Jill Marie Snyder's virtual workshop, Telling Your Family's Story, Putting It All Together? Sponsored by Hartford's Ancient Burying Ground Association and the Hartford Public Library, it's free. But you must register on the Facebook page for the Ancient Burying Ground under Events. The registration link will also be in the Grading the Nutmeg show notes for this episode. Oris, have you gone back to Virginia or Georgia or some of the other places where your family lived? Yes, um, both those specific places I've been to. I actually visited my grandmother's uh, birthplace of Blakely, Georgia, about two weeks before she died. It was my first time going back. And my mom went with me. It was her first time to Georgia as well. But my grandmother, when she left Georgia, she never went back. And that was in 1943. So, and then I've also traced Albert Terrell's parents to uh, Louisa County, Virginia, uh, just outside of Richmond. So I visited uh, Louisa County um, just this year, actually on Juneteenth. I visited there to just view view that land and, and look at some of the records. Um, the wonderful Library of Virginia there in Richmond, and I actually got some books that I looked at with some great records in it and and uh, and looked at some microfilm because um, it was all really about 20 minutes away from where my ancestors were from in Virginia in the 1700s. And so we know how Jill's family moved north or part of Jill's family moved north. What about your family that you said your is it your grandmother came in 1943 and never went back? Never to went Georgia? back. 
and then she actually moved first to Jacksonville, Florida, then to Harlem, New York, and then to Hartford, Connecticut. But my grandfather was born in Hartford in 1918, and his parents moved to Hartford um, October 15th, 1916. Which I remember that because my great-grandmother, Tobias, gave birth the night that she moved uh, to Hartford. Um, you know, they were sitting on the train coming up in the colored section of the train, which is you know, was at that time was right behind the engine. And I'm thinking that maybe some of those fumes really just pushed her pregnancy along. Um, I don't know what if she was at full term or not, but she gave birth in the street that night. The taxis would not pick up black people at that time in Hartford. So she gave birth in the street on Chestnut Street to my uncle Arthur, um, who's actually the father of Cheryl Smith who you mentioned earlier, the founder of the Artist Collective. That was her father. He was born that night. So they came up because my great-grandfather, Doc Smith, had a job at the Coca-Cola factory. He was a bottler. And he, he had come up a couple months earlier, I think in April of 1916, along with his father-in-law. He sent eventually for his wife, the one that gave birth that night, and they already had one son. I feel so so upset for you, for her to have this horrible birth experience because it's traumatic enough to deal with the, without having all the problems of being on the train and not being able to get a cab and not being in a hospital. Oh, geez. Right. Um, but thank you to a Dr. Bernhard Zeman who actually lived around the corner and came to help her deliver the baby and probably saved her life and then in turn saved my life and, and Cheryl Smith's life. and. Emery Austin Smith, the pianist, who's the youngest of all those siblings. You know, there's a lot of people that thankfully were created because of uh, Dr. Zeman uh, saving her life that night. That's one of the things that really fascinates me about family history. And I've only gotten to the stage of collecting material. I haven't gotten to the stage of writing the stories. So you're inspiring me right now, which is good. But if things just go slightly one way or the other, the whole story changes. Now you won the books won an award. What other kind of response have you had to the book? People who buy it love it. They they really enjoy reading it, and they're really impressed with my father and his expressions, romantic expressions. <laughs> and it, I think it you know having a black man that you know the image of in the media of black men are you know sort of silent brutes, you know, often portrayed that way. So having uh, this black man writes it's almost poetry, literally in some places, poetry to my mother is a surprise to a lot of people. And Oris, now you mentioned that your family is really taken with the website and has found the website. What other kinds of response have you had to your genealogy that's out there on your blog? I, I mean, just all over, all across the board. Some folks are just amazed at the stories and, and just curious to know more and asking me to post more. And I'm like, okay, I have, you know, a couple other jobs that I have to, you know, attend to, tend to. And then I have also, I help people with their own genealogy stories as well. So I'm trying to post more and share more stories. I would eventually like to publish a book as well. So um, this is inspiration for me as well. So thank you for that, Jill. But um, yeah, I would like to um, keep sharing stories and keep letting people know that, you know, these stories matter even in 2021 you know, telling our family stories, but we need to continue telling them because the, the history is relevant now and it always will be. And, you know, I can I can point to certain moments throughout time 
that inform us about moments that are happening now. So I think it's it's super important. I want to close with um, Jill. You said the following. I got this from the press release from the New Haven Museum for your from your presentation. You said, I believe strongly that every Black family should document its history. It's important to document these stories for historians to get a fuller view of the Black experience and to inspire future generations. Do you either have any more comments on that? I think that's so true. Yeah, I, I thought about that a lot on why it's important. And um, I want to quote a poet named Arna Bontemps an African-American poet, uh, he wrote in the, these words in the 1930s, is there something we have forgotten, some precious thing we have lost wandering in strange lands? And I believe the precious thing we've lost is our connection to our ancestors, especially again for African-Americans. There's a concept in African philosophy and cultural wisdom, I should say, uh, called personhood. It's a concept of personhood. and. And a writer named August Shute wrote these words. It says, I am in the beginning at the start of life. I am really not a person at all. Or put in another way, say that I am a potential person. I only become fully human to the extent that I am included in relationships with others. And so, and for African people, the relationships we have with others is not just with the living, we, have, uh, we can have relationships with our ancestors, understanding their lives, what they uh, accomplished in their lives, how their lives contribute to our lives as our conversation today, I think, shows. So it's, I think it's really something, uh, almost a spiritual quest for us to do genealogical work. And I find I've had very emotional moments as I've uncovered facts about my family, but they've turned into healing moments. And really, it welled up in me a sense of gratitude. I hope that is what people get out from our conversations today, that you really grow within this deep sense of gratitude for all our, what our ancestors endured and what they accomplished and so that we could be here today. Oh, so well said. I want to thank you both for being my guests on the podcast. I'm Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. If you'd like to learn more about our guests, go to their websites, jillmariesnyder.com and orisjenkins.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you tune in for our next episode. I'm Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg.